be seated. I've shared with you before, I think, that I have something of a photographic memory. Uh, that could be good, and sometimes it can be a curse. It seems like everything I read, uh, everything I hear, sticks somewhere into the back of my mind. And uh, sometimes that's a good thing when you have to take tests or you have to recall things. But uh, other times it just kind of rambles around, and you can't get rid of it. My wife says, uh, I have more useless knowledge than any person should ever have. It, uh, you know, it helps on trivial pursuit, and that's about it. But it, it just... It, it, it's, I enjoy it, but it's difficult sometimes to forget things. Uh, but one thing, and the irony of having a photographic memory is one of my greatest struggles is to remember people's names. Uh, I have always, from the time I was a kid, had difficulty recalling people's names when I come across them a second or a third or a fourth time. And that led uh, not understanding and remembering names and i've tried all kind of tricks i know uh, every time i talk about it, somebody comes up after and says here try this it works tried all kind of tricks and it led to probably one of the most embarrassing moments in my life uh especially when i was young in my life in college i served as the student government president for a couple of years at our university and one of those years uh, the school got a new president and they had a great idea that they would have a student reception for the new president, a student greeting with the new president. And they thought it would be good for the student government president, who was me, to stand in the receiving line and introduce everybody that came through to the new president. Well, I was in a panic. I thought there's no way I'll be able to introduce people uh, if I can't remember their names. And so his secretary helped me out, and she put together a little protocol that they put on a, a wall when you walked into the reception area. It said, you know, be courteous. Please stand in line. Uh, when you come to Rusty, tell Rusty your name, and he will introduce you to the president. And that's the way it was supposed to work, you know. And said, don't linger and, you know, shake his hand and that sort of thing. And so people were supposed to come up to me and say their name, and then I would turn and say, you know, Dr. Craig. Craig, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. And it worked great for a little while. But then all of a sudden, friends of mine or guys from the dorm or girls that I knew from other clubs and other organizations began to come through. And they just naturally assumed that I knew their name or that I would remember their name. Well, on any given day, I probably could remember their name. But I was stressed and I was panicked and I was worried. And there's nothing more embarrassing than to have uh, your sweet mate or the guy that lives next door to you and his girlfriend who you've gone out with before come and stand in front of you and look at you like okay go ahead and introduce us and I not know who in the world they were I couldn't remember their names and they would just stare at me and, and it was so horrible I, I promise you I messed up uh, probably 20 to 25 names and uh, you know you can't look at your friend or you can't look at your sweet mate and say and your name is uh, so it was horrible and finally there was a lull in the line there was a lull in, in the reception and the president who had noticed that I was having some difficulty looked over at me and said it's not the easiest gig in the world is it now you know and I thought thank you for recognizing that and we developed a new plan he said listen why don't uh, instead of you introducing just have them introduce themselves to me and that way cuts you out cuts you uh, having to worry about it and so that worked wonderful but I still to this day uh, and for the next two years I was in college had friends that would come up uh, and introduce themselves to me say hi I don't know if you know me I, I've got friends now that I'll see at conferences from from when I was in college and they'll say hi, let me introduce myself I don't know if you remember me and so uh, it stuck with me, and so I've always tried to make sure I could remember names. And one of my 
communication professors, I was a communication student, was there and he saw how panicked and how much I blew that, uh, that assignment. And so he pulled me aside afterwards when we were all uh, mingling. And he said, listen, Rusty, I saw that you had some struggles there. He said, I struggle with remembering names. So let me help you out. He said, the greatest way to remember names is to always remember them by association. He said, when you remember a name, he said, put something with that name and it'll help your brain lock on to what their name is. And he said, listen, uh, if you can put down what their job is, if you can put down a characteristic about them, and then that way it'll stick in your brain. He also reminded me that if you say something out loud 21 times, it commits itself to memory. Uh, Psychologists and sociologists have said that. And so I started practicing it. And when I would meet somebody, I would automatically in my brain associate it with something else and so that uh, Billy was not Billy Billy was the evangelist son and Stan was the teacher and Joey was the coach and and so as I put those in my head all of a sudden I I began to remember names and I still do it to this day and uh, so if you're looking at me and I'm staring at you like I don't remember your name I'm trying to associate how I remember your name okay Uh, and most people don't care if you associate uh, what they do or a characteristic about them or uh, something that's important important about them with their name as long as what you associate is a good thing you know if you didn't have a good occupation if you didn't have a good job if you didn't have a good characteristic uh, you know you didn't want, you wouldn't want to be buried the bitter right you know so uh, as long as it's a good association then everybody wants it but what happens if you have a bad occupation how would you like to be labeled for the rest of your life with an occupation that you're not real proud of Well, that's what happened to the character we're going to look at today. Matter of fact, she's a well-known character in the Bible, but for 3,000 years, her name has been linked together with her occupation. Matter of fact, you don't find it in the Bible without listing her occupation. And matter, I can probably say her name and you would be able to tell me what her occupation is if you have any acquaintance with the Bible. Her name is Rahab. Anybody know what her occupation was? You can go ahead and speak. I'm asking a question. What? Prostitute. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Let me ask you, how would you like to be known for 3,000 years as the prostitute? I mean, she went on and did a whole lot of other things. But every time when James mentions her and when other people mention her, it's always in context of Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. And you see, what's so ironic is when we think of Rahab the prostitute, she was only one of two women to make the Hebrew chapter 11 roll call of faith. How did this woman who is known throughout time as being a harlot or a prostitute become a hero of faith? How did she become someone that you and I should be able to look to as having an incredible faith and use it as an example? Well, I believe, and and I'm going to hopefully show you that the reason and the way that she became from a harlot to a hero was because in her life, faith and grace collided. And you see, what I want you to understand is we're studying this series, Found Faithful, and talking about what it means to be faithful. When grace and faith collide, it changes your life forever. And when grace and faith collided in Rahab the harlot's life, it changed her forever. Not just her, 
but her family and her destiny and her character. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. You see, Rahab had something different that allowed her to be listed with all of these men, and, and uh, Sarah is the other woman listed in Hebrews 11, all of these people who had incredible faith. And for Rahab, faith and grace collided in the city of Jericho. So if you have a Bible, I want you to follow this story because I want you to see what happens. Because I believe for some of you this morning, grace and faith are ready to collide. So if you don't know where it is, you have it on your blue sheet. I think I've given you some of the passage there. Uh, uh, Joshua is the fifth book, sixth book. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So it's the sixth book in the Old Testament. Uh, You can find it there. Joshua chapter 1. Remember the background of all this stuff going into it. The children of Israel had been uh, 40 years under Moses in the wilderness. They wouldn't cross the Jordan. So they died, a whole generation of people in the wilderness, and they are on the verge of the Jordan River. Moses has died. Joshua has taken over. They're getting ready to go claim the land that is theirs. They're going to claim the promised land, the land that had been promised to Abraham. They're on the border, but before they can cross over, before they can go into Canaan and take over the land, there is a huge city in their way. Matter of fact, it's a fortress city known as Jericho. Now, most of us know the story of Jericho and Joshua blowing the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. What you don't understand is it was probably the most formidable city in its day. Jericho was surrounded by two walls that were each 30 feet high. The first wall was anywhere from 18 to 20 foot thick. The second wall, the medium wall inside was anywhere from 12 to 15 foot thick. This was a place that you were not going to get into. This was a place that was well protected. And for Joshua and his uh, soldiers' army to be able to move into Canaan, they couldn't go around Jericho. They had to go through Jericho. And so Joshua decides to send some spies to go into Jericho and see what's happening. And that's where we come to in Joshua chapter 2. So this is where it's introduced. And, And let me just say this. I'm going to call her Rahab. Uh, That's not her name's pronunciation. Uh, That's just because we all grew up that way. Her name is Rahab. Okay, now you say, well, there's not much difference. Rahab, Rahab. Uh, Rahab, I think, is just a southern uh, translation. And I remember one time I tried to teach through this, and I kept calling her Rahab, and everybody looked at me like they didn't understand what I was talking about. So I'm going to say Rahab because that's what you know. Uh, But if you're wanting to pronounce her name, it's Rahab. And this is where she's introduced. Chapter 2 verse 1 it said then Joshua the son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim now uh, it's not lost on us that Joshua was one of the 12 spies that came into the promised land Uh, remember 10 gave bad reports 2 gave good we talked about it a couple of weeks ago so now instead of sending 10 Joshua's just sending 2 he's cutting his odds that he's going to get a good report so they go in he says go and look over the land especially Jericho so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed at her house now when you read this and you look at this the first thing that comes out is is that she is introduced to these spies as they come into her house why in the world would they go to her house over other people's house 
Why would the first place that they go, is it an accident or is it a coincidence that they entered into her house? Well, this is a nice way of cleaning up the story. Rahab was a prostitute. And so her house was not necessarily her little dwelling. It was a prostitute's house. Uh, We have other terminology that we use for that. It was like a bar. It was like an inn. It was where people could come in and out. Uh, Travelers could come and spend the night. And so now naturally, if they're trying to sneak into the city, if they're trying to find their way in, they would go to this place that was a bar or a club or like a nightclub and and try to remain uh, hidden from the rest of the people. They would try to remain as people that were uh, snuck in. And so as we look at this and you're reading in the story, uh, you need to understand that that she is taking them in and her only acquaintance with these spies is then coming to a house of prostitution. She knew nothing else about them. But word gets out that some spies from Israel are in the city. And so people go to the king and the king confronts the prostitute Rahab. Listen as we continue. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent a message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered into your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Verse four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, she's talking to the king. Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the gate, the men left. And I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly and you may catch up with them. And then in parentheses, verse 6, but she had taken them up on her roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So let me, let me just recap this. Two men from the nation of Israel come into a house of prostitution. Rahab, Rahab is there. She sees them. She takes them and hides them. And then when she's confronted by her king, she lies about it and sends them on a wild goose chase. Now, when you hear that story, there's a couple of things that jump out. There's a couple of things that don't make sense to me. First of all, why? Why would Rahab turn her back on her king? Why would she lie to her king? Why would she turn her back on her city? Why would she turn her back on everything that she knows? She doesn't know these men. She doesn't know what they're about. She doesn't even know why they're there. All she knows is that they're spies that are coming to destroy and wipe out her city. Why would she lie to her king about it? Doesn't make any sense. And the second thing that doesn't make sense is why Rahab? Why her? See, what do we know about Rahab? Well, we know she was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish. She was a pagan. She was living in a spiritually dark world. She was in the middle of a spiritually dark city. The the city of Jericho was the capital of the Canaanite empire. The Canaanites were the sworn enemies of Israel. So she is a sworn enemy of these spies. Not only that, she wasn't just Canaanite. She came from a smaller tribe within the Canaanites called the Amorites. And the Amorites were the most pagan of all groups. They practiced the most ungodly idol worship that there was. They practiced uh, child sacrifice. We have in history and, and the Bible records that the Amorites, God vowed to wipe them from the face of the earth because of their brutality. And last but not least, she was a prostitute. See, why Rahab? 
If you're going to pick somebody to be a hero in the story, if you're going to, if God's going to pick somebody to try to help these two spies, why would he pick the worst of the worst of the worst? And why in the world would this prostitute turn her back on all the things that she had known? See, it doesn't make sense. Well, let's keep reading and see what the story. Verse 8, before the spies laid down for the night, Rahab went on the roof and she said to them this, for I know that the Lord has given this land to you and a great fear has fallen upon us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to Shahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan when you completely destroyed them. That, that's back at the end of, of uh, Deuteronomy. They came across these kingdoms while they were wandering in the wilderness and destroyed them. And then in verse 11, she says this, When we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage fell because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord you worship that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign that you will spare the life of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us to death. And the men answered this, our lives for your life. If you don't tell what you are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. Now, as you're reading through that, did you hear it? Did you hear the place where faith and grace collided? Why did Rahab do it? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Rahab in her house of prostitution had heard the stories about God. She'd heard the stories of how God had saved them from uh, certain doom at Pharaoh's army. She'd heard the stories of how God had rescued them and allowed them to defeat the strongest kings in the camp. She'd heard all of these stories. And as she heard the truth of the word of God, the Bible says it melted her heart. And she began to place her trust in God. You see, that's what faith is. Faith is hope in what we cannot see and strong assurance of what we don't know. We've been talking about this idea of faith. And you see what happened in the middle of this pagan city, in the middle of this lostness. This prostitute heard the word of God and it allowed her to put her faith not in the walls of Jericho, not in her armies, not in her friends, not in where she grew up, but to place her faith in God. And because she placed her faith in God, she was willing to walk away from everything else she knew. We've talked for the last couple of weeks that faith always compels us to let go of our past. Faith compels us to let go of the things that we cling to, the things that we draw assurance from. Faith compels us to let go of all of those things that we put our hope in if it's not God. And Rahab the prostitute here saw something that no one else could see. See, we said the first week that faith gives you eyes to see beyond what your earthly eyes can see. And Rahab saw a God who could tear down the walls of Jericho and she placed her faith in him. Why? Because faith changed her life. Why lie to the king? Why walk away? Because faith was working from the inside out. 
You see, like Gideon last week, faith caused her to let go and trust God. Now, why Rahab? Why did God choose Rahab to send the spies to? That's where grace comes in. Because you see, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is when God gives us something we don't deserve. See, grace and mercy are different. We've talked about this before. Mercy is when you deserve punishment. You deserve something and God doesn't give it to you. Grace is just the opposite. Grace is when God gives you something freely that you don't deserve. What was God giving Rahab? Salvation. You see, in the middle of this lost city, this pagan area, the worst of all the worst people, God pursued her with his love and his grace and offered to save her. Why Rahab? Because God's grace works that way. Because God's grace reaches out to the least of these. Because God's grace reaches out to you and to me and to the least of this city and to the worst of this city. And shares his love and shares his salvation. She was saved because of grace. Her family was saved because of grace. God's grace has a bigger plan than just the destruction of Jericho. See, when faith and grace collide, God is always weaving a bigger picture. We've seen it in Noah's life. We've seen it in Gideon's life. And we're seeing it in Rahab's life. Matter of fact, let me ask you a question. Why is this story mentioned? Did the spies report change anything? Did Joshua really need the spies' report to go in and defeat Jericho? God had already told him the city was his. If they'd have come back and said, don't go, would Joshua have stopped? Why is this story in here? Why is it included? Did this make any difference in the texture and the storyline of the Bible? Did it affect the city? Did it affect anything that happened? No, God allowed this story to come in because he's weaving a picture for you and I 3,000 years after it happened so that we would understand that in our lives when faith and grace collide, there is something incredible that happens. And it can change your life and it can change your family's life and it can change your destiny. And let me just tell you something. One of the things that I learned from this story is you can't outrun grace. You can't move beyond grace. See, some of you think that you can keep saying no and keep moving away and, and keep rejecting, but the Bible teaches all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that God's grace pursues us. See, some of us think we can hide from God's grace. Some of us think we don't deserve it, and if, if we just ignore it, then God's grace will go away. It doesn't. It pursues you with his message of love. And sadly, some people think they can out God's grace. You see, here's what happens in people's mind. We begin to do some things that aren't what God wants in our life, and we think God should never forgive me. God can't forgive me. So instead of turning back to God's grace, I might as well keep on sinning. It's like the prodigal son that thought, I, I better just keep partying because the father will never let me back. Listen, you can't out grace. You can't outrun grace. No matter where you are this morning, God's grace is pursuing after you and coming after you, and it'll find you. Just like it found this prostitute from the pagan culture in the middle of the most dangerous city in the land of Canaan. 
But see, Rahab didn't just declare her faith. She didn't just stand up and say, I believe in your God. She also acted on that faith. She did something about it. Matter of fact, what she did was she put her life on the line. Verses 15 through 22 tell us that since they made a plan, since they developed this idea that they were going to trust in grace and trust in Rahab, Rahab said, how are you going to save me? They said, here's what we want you to do. When we leave this city, you help us get out of this city. And when we come back and the walls and the war begin to take place, what we want you to do is to hang a red scarlet cord from your window on the wall. And that way when our armies come, that way when we begin to defeat your city, we will see that red cord and we will pass by your house. And everyone that's in your house will be saved. And Rahab said, that's what we'll do. She snuck the spies out of the city And she trusted in something she didn't understand. The Bible tells us when the battle began to take place, Rahab put a red string outside of her door and the enemies passed by. She wasn't killed. She was saved. That's not an accident that they decided on a red cord. You see, there's symbolism there. Just like going back to the Passover lamb, it's a precursor to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. See, she wasn't saved because she stuck a red cord out her window. She was saved because she placed her faith in God. But faith in God caused her and led her to God's plan. And what was God's plan? It was the red cord. Just like it was putting the blood on the door for the Passover lamb to pass by. Just like the blood of Jesus Christ is shed so that you and I may not die. That cord was the means to her salvation. Didn't save her. It was the means to her salvation. And this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ is the means to your salvation. People used to ask, well, how in the world did people in the Old Testament get saved? How can people in the Old Testament be assured that they're going to heaven? It's the same way you and I are assured we're going to heaven. They are saved by faith. Rahab put her faith in God, and that faith led her to the means to that salvation, the red cord that saved her. Today, if you want to receive God's grace, you put your faith in God and God's plan. What is God's plan? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's his blood that redeems and forgives and saves us. See, Rahab was a precursor. It was a picture. God was weaving something together. She declared her faith. She demonstrated her faith. And more importantly than that, her faith saved her. See, it was because of her faith, because she was acting on her faith, God saved her and changed her life. Listen to what happens. I'll skip ahead. The battle, they march around the city. You know what's going on as they march around the city. Tells us in Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied the land, You go first into the city and to the prostitute's house. Bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath and your promise to her. So the young men who had spied with Rahab went in and brought her out and her father out and her mother out and her brothers out and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and put them a place outside of the camp. And then they burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her family and all belonged to her 
because she hid the men Joshua had sent to Jericho. And she lives to this day among the nation of Israel. She declared her faith. She demonstrated her faith. And that faith delivered her. She went from a prostitute to a part of the kingdom. Why? Because grace and faith collided. See, you and I do the same thing. We move from the realm of this world to the realm of God's kingdom when grace and faith collide. Because of her faith, her destiny was changed. Because of her faith, her life was changed. If that was all that happened, it'd be enough. But that's not the last we hear of Rahab. It's not the end of the story because you see when God finds grace and faith colliding, he is always weaving a bitter picture. Now, we don't know the name of the two spies. Uh, we don't, it doesn't give it anywhere, but Jewish tradition teaches that one of the spies' names was a man by the name of Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N. And Salmon was a prince of the tribe of Judah. We know from the book of Numbers that his dad's name was Nashon. And Nashon, during the time of Moses, was the head of the tribe of Judah. Judah, you know, is the royal tribe. It is the largest tribe. It is the most prestigious tribe. And Nashon was ruler of the tribe of Judah. But Nashon was not allowed to come into the promised land. And so he died. And when he died, his son Salmon took over. And because he was the head of this great tribe, the royal tribe, many people believe that he was one of Joshua's greatest generals. And so he is allowed or he is sent as a spy into the city of Jericho. Well, guess what the Bible tells us who Rahab marries? After the destruction of Jericho, Rahab marries Salmon. So think about this. Not only is she redeemed and saved to be a part of the kingdom, she now becomes the queen, the princess of the tribe of Judah. Wrap your head around that. From the, from the hall of shame to the walk of fame, she goes from nothing to something because faith and grace. She goes from having no reputation to being a, a part of the king. And that's a cool story, but that's still not the end of it. See, Salmon and Rahab the prostitute have a son. His name's Boaz. You may recognize the name Boaz because it comes from the book of Ruth. You see, in the book of Ruth, we find out that Ruth's husband dies. And when Ruth's husband dies, her kinsman redeemer, the, the person closest to her husband that was part of their family that was supposed to marry her, wouldn't marry her because she was a Moabite. And he didn't want to bring a clouded bloodline into his family. But Boaz, who was the prince of Judah, he had grown up listening to his ex-prostitute Gentile mom talk about how bloodlines didn't matter. Grace did. And so Boaz said, I'll marry you, Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz married, and they had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a young son named David, who became the king of the nation of Israel. Rahab the prostitute is King David's great-great-grandmother. Rahab, 
whose destiny was to live in prostitution in a Gentile pagan city. But by grace through faith, she changed history. Follow that a little further down. And you find in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 in those genealogies that we just blur over the name Rahab as being an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So think about it. Stay with me. When Jesus Christ was on the cross and that blood was pouring down his head, down his hands and his feet, it wasn't just Jewish blood. It was Gentile blood too. Because back in his genealogy, a prostitute in Jericho said, I'll trust you, God. And that same blood was shed for you and I. And that same grace is available because of that blood. You see, what I want you to understand from this story is that when grace and faith collide, God is painting a bigger picture. God's grace is still chasing us today. Now, anytime I read or hear about the story of Rahab, we talked a little bit about it when we talked about James. I always think of a story that Tony Campolo, Anthony Campolo, who is a uh, Christian author, Christian speaker, he's passed away now. Uh, he relates of a time that he visited Hawaii. Tony Campolo spoke all over the world. He was going to Hawaii to speak. He was from the East Coast, a professor, university in Pennsylvania. His body clock was off, and he'd gotten into Hawaii, and he couldn't sleep. And every night at 3 o'clock, he would wake wide up. And so as he would wake up, he got hungry, and he, he wanted to walk around. And so one night, he tells in his story that he gets up, and he goes searching for some coffee. And he, he's wandering the streets of Honolulu, and, and finally, he finds one place that's open. It's a greasy spoon off one of the main strips. And so he walks in at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's almost empty. There's a couple of people sitting in booths. Walks up to the counter and a big gruffy guy, he says, that you would imagine being behind a greasy spoon at 3 o'clock is standing there and he orders coffee and a donut. And they begin to talk. And while he eats his donut, a group of eight or nine women come walking into the restaurant. He could tell by their talk that they were prostitutes getting off of work for the night. They were rough. He said they look aged beyond their years said he sat there with them, listening to them curse and smoke and, and laugh about their nights. He said he was about to leave when he heard the lady that was sitting next to him tell the woman next to her uh, what today was and say, guess what, tomorrow is my birthday. And the lady next to her looked at the other prostitute and said, who cares, what do you want me to do, throw you a party? You want me to buy you a cake or something? And Campolo was listening, and the lady whose birthday it was going to be said, no, I'm not asking you to do that. Matter of fact, I've never had a birthday. I've never had a cake. I was just telling you, why do you have to be so mean? And Campolo kind of listened to all that was going on, and he said he developed right then a plan, and he waited, and those ladies left. And after they left, he leaned over and asked the man at the bar, he said, listen, these ladies that came in, do they come in here all the time? He said, yeah, they're here every night. About 3.30 they come in. He said, listen, the lady that was sitting next to me, does she come in here every night? He said, yeah, that's Agnes. She comes in here every night. He said, why are you asking? Campolo said, well, while they were talking, she mentioned tomorrow is her birthday, and I want to throw her a birthday party. 
And the man behind the counter said, that's a great idea. A birthday party, let's do it. And, and Campolo said, I'll pick up some things tomorrow and, and I'll come back tomorrow night and, and we'll put up some decorations and some balloons and we'll surprise her with a birthday party. He said, I'll even go get a cake. And the man behind the counter said, you don't have to get a cake. And he called his wife out from the kitchen, told her what was going on. He said, listen, he wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. And the man's wife said, Agnes, she's, she's so sweet and she's always doing stuff for others and no one ever does anything for her. She, the wife said, listen, I'll make the birthday cake. You don't have to worry about that. You just get everything else. And so they leave, and he leaves. And Campolo said the next night, he shows up about 2.30, and he's got some crepe paper and some balloons. And he had fashioned a birthday card that said, happy birthday, Agnes, a, a sign to put on the back of the bar. And they began to decorate. And as they decorate, he said, it, the word must have got out because he said it seemed like within the next 30 minutes, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that restaurant. They began to pile in. He said, here I was, 3 o'clock in the morning, a Christian speaker with a room full of smoking prostitutes. He said, and they all got quiet, and exactly at 3.30, Agnes and her friends walked in, and led by Tony, he jumped up. He said, happy birthday, surprise. And Campolo said she was taken aback. She was shocked. And all of the women were screaming happy birthday. And they began to sing happy birthday to her. And she didn't know what to do. She kind of stumbled and, and almost fell. And then out of the back, his wife comes bringing a birthday cake. And they're singing happy birthday. And they say, blow out the candles. And when they bring the cake out, he, Campolo said it looked like she was about to pass out. And she was weeping so hard. And she said, I've never had a birthday. I've never had a birthday cake. And as she's weeping, the guy behind the bar, Campolo, say, you could tell he was a rough guy. He wasn't used to prostitutes crying in his restaurant. So he kind of gruffly said, listen, just cut the cake, Agnes. Just cut the cake. She stared at it for a few minutes, and she said, would you care if, if I didn't cut all of it, but I was able to take some of this home? Campolo said, no, you, you can take it all home if you want. She said, really, can I? Can I take this home? He said, yeah, you can take it home. And he said, right then and there, she stood up. She said, I'll be right back. I just live next door. And she carried it out like she was carrying out the Ark of the Covenant, he said. And as she walked out the door, he said, here he was with a room full of silent prostitutes, nobody knowing what to say, nobody knowing what to do. He said, so not thinking of anything else, he stood up on a chair and said, guys, would you pray with me for Agnes? In the midst of those prostitutes at 3.30 in that greasy joint in Honolulu, he began to pray that God would bless Agnes and that God would bless her health and that God would protect her and that God would save her. When he got through, he sat back down and it was still a hush over the room and the guy behind the bar, big gruff guy, leans over and he whispers to Campolo, he says, you never told me you were a preacher. <laughs> so what kind of church do you go to? And Campolo said it was one of those times when just the right words come to you at just the right time. He leaned over and he said, I go to the kind of church and I serve the kind of God that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. That's who Rahab discovered in that prostitute house in Jericho. A God whose grace and love pursues you a God whose love reached out 
into the enemy's camp and changed her life. A God whose grace and forgiveness is driving and calling to you and I right where you are. You see, this morning, Rahab's story is my story. And it's your story. That God of grace reaching out, undeservedly loving us and saving us. Faith, grace, colliding. If it's not your story this morning, if you're running, searching, the God that loved that prostitute is calling out to you. And like her, all you have to do is put your faith in him, trust him. Trust him. Trust his plan. Have you done that? And for those of us that are believers, let me ask you this. If God could do so much with Rahab and her little bit of faith, he changed time and space and history. Imagine what he can do with you and I. Your story is not yet finished. Will you trust him? Let's pray.